Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Life is full of awesome what ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Um, so I don't even see, I don't even know how we would get into it. Uh, so we're doing two topics or maybe only one topic. I think we'll see how it goes. Actually, I was thinking if we do, if we do Azerbaijan, Armenia and Chechnya, we could call the segment cocky Caucasians. <laughs> but, uh, oh. We'll see. Now we've got to do, now we do have to do both. Now we I have don't know. to. Can, <laughs> can we, can we go with raucous caucuses? Ooh. Also good. You're on top of it today, Jason. Thank you. Thank you. Good brain space we got going today. <laughs> there was a there was a really incredible joke, listeners, that would that that Jason threw at us right before we jumped on, uh, and you'll never get to hear it. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it was the best joke it. ever told. It was you know. <laughs> thank you. Uh, thank you. This is uh, this is Angry Planet. We're on with uh, Aram Shabanian. It's been on the show many times. I got it that right that time, right? You did, and I think you're like the only podcast host who who has ever gotten it right. Um, um, so I, I'm. It's been torture. Like my name, like doing the names right, has been torturing me because I actually uh, I do a live show at uh, advice that's like two hours long, uh, and I froze on a Portuguese last name uh, last episode, like right as I was about to say it, and I had practiced it, and then like I'm just like standing. I, then you have to acknowledge it. it's terrible. So I've been, if you're anything like me, I'll do this. Like, okay, it's not pronounced this way, right? It's not. And then I come to say, I'm like, what, wait, was it pronounced that way? Or was it not pronounced that way? And then I say it the wrong way almost every time. So, (laughs) yeah, yeah. Well, now that we've decided on all of our names. (laughs) So what are we talking about this week? Right. Uh, we're talking about Armenia and Azerbaijan and Chechnya, the raucous Caucasus. as Jason said, <laughs> um, before we get into that, I know that there was uh, a little bit of, so we're going to start with Armenia, Azerbaijan. There's been a lot of news uh, about it just in like, the past 24 hours. Um, and this is one of those things where by the time y'all hear this, we're recording this Wednesday, it'll go live Friday for Substack subscribers, Monday for everybody else. Uh, things may be outdated, but we're going to dig a little bit more into the past uh, and kind of give some background, but also, uh, Aram, you wanted to do a little bit of throat clearing and kind of confirm your biases before we moved forward, right? To just kind of give let everyone know what your perspective was here. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, I, I give this caveat anytime I talk about Armenia, Azerbaijan. I am, uh, you know, Armenian uh, American, um, and my family is Armenian uh, from Adana present day Turkey, though. We're not from present day Armenia, so we're not directly tied in with anything like that, but we are Armenian ethnically. Adana's on the Mediterranean coast, quite far from present day Armenia. Um, And so we, I represent more of the diaspora community's opinion on a lot of these things, but I will do my best to be impartial here and give caveats when I think that I might be giving weighted information. Thank you. I appreciate that. I think the audience appreciates that. Um, So I woke up yesterday, I believe, uh, with a message from you. Um, and uh, we had been talking about doing this episode. We were going to do it next week because uh, things had been kind of, uh, I don't know if heating up is the correct metaphor uh, in this particular case, but th- but news had been happening uh, in the region. Um, and you said like, yeah, you know, I'm busy this week. I can't do it. And then I, I, I knew something, I, I knew that I had to look into the news specifically when I woke up and you had a message uh, sent in the middle of the night, I think that was like, yeah, let's do it. Let's, let's do Wednesday. And I was like, oh, okay, so it's serious now. Uh, so can you tell me about before we kind of get into history and, uh, uh, why this is all happening? Can you kind of give me what happened that you saw that, that made you want to reach out and do the episode sooner? Uh, and kind of like what's been happening the last 48 hours. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it's been building for some time. Uh, the last maybe three or four weeks, there's been quite a significant buildup of Azerbaijani forces in the region, um, akin to what we saw in 2020 before the war launched. So we saw like a lot of drones building up on runways. 
We saw a lot of soldiers being brought into the region. And then the rhetoric on Aziri TV also ramped up. I uh, monitor a bunch of different news channels all day, among them four channels from Azerbaijan. And they were all just showing replays of drone footage from 2020 and talking about war rhetoric, despite the fact that there had been two major earthquakes within the Islamic world in the last week, uh, which would normally dominate the news in a Muslim, do- uh, Muslim majority country, uh, that there had been major losses of life. Uh, but they were barely a news item. It was more about Azerbaijan and Armenia and Armenia provoking Azerbaijan. And so that kind of alerted me that something was going on and something could potentially uh, flare up. Um, and then it was similar to the lead up to the war in Ukraine in that part of what I, part of the reason I was so in tune with what was happening here was that it wasn't just me, right? There's a whole community of other open source analysts on Twitter who are following this stuff. And so when we all start saying the same thing is likely, it kind of becomes alarming and, and uh, like a red flag goes up. And so that's why I was more inclined to do this podcast sooner than later. Um, and then, of course, uh, two nights ago, I uh, we've all been there. It's 9 p.m. and you get into the work funk. And so you just start working, right? And so I'm working yep. at 9 p.m. Next thing I know, it's 2 in the morning, about to go to bed. And the announcement comes out that Azerbaijan is attacking Armenia. So I didn't sleep. I messaged you uh, and said, let's do this um, because I think the potential for this war, despite the fact that there's a ceasefire and agreement right now, I think the potential for this to continue every several weeks or several months is quite great. Um, and depending on where it continues and, and the, the tone it takes, it could spiral into something more regional. And so that's why I thought it was important to do this show sooner than later um, was because I think that in light of American troops withdrawing or leaving Armenia soon, there were about 80 American troops in Armenia doing a training exercise. They're leaving within the next 24 hours. Um, so in light of that and in light of several other developments, I think it's important and timely to have this episode come out. Now this, there is a, as you said, there's a ceasefire right now. Um, uh, Azerbaijan is, I believe, like as a condition of that ceasefire, uh, the Armenian troops that are like ha- actually had to surrender their ammo. It's being brokered by the Russians, uh, which is always great when the Russians are the peacekeeping operation. Um, and yeah. it, it has a feeling of trying to n- neuter a military before the before another big strike slash let's get the Americans out of here. Is it kind of is is that accurate or am I just am I it's it's, ac- it's definitely accurate. Um, I just want to give the caveat here that the forces being disarmed are Nagorno-Karabakh Defense Forces and not the Armenian military proper. So there's the Armenian military within the Republic of Armenia that's internationally recognized, and then there's the Nagorno-Karabakh Defense Forces, which are within the uh, Armenian enclave Nagorno-Karabakh. Um, those are the ones that are being disarmed now. The other day when the fighting escalated, there were regular Armenian forces that it looked like were being struck because there were weapon systems being struck that I don't believe the Karabakh Defense Forces maintained, uh, air defense forces, air, air defense units, things like that. Um, and then again, in 2020, the war did involve the Republic of Armenia's armed forces directly. And that was an army on army battle between the two states, Armenia and Azerbaijan. Um, so the disarming is, is notable because the Karabakh Defense Forces were pretty much armed with small arms and and some heavy artillery already they weren't a a a threat to azerbaijan's safety they weren't going to attack azerbaijan anytime soon they weren't a an offensive force the armenian military itself is unlikely to get involved in this conflict right now unless the republic of armenia itself is attacked because one that's what azerbaijan wants they want armenia to be pulled into this war so they can clobber them again and that's i mean that's not to condemn Aziris as bad people. That's just a classic strongman tactic. Um, and I'll pause here and say that I have often referred to Aliyev as uh, the Saddam Hussein of the Caucasus. I don't mean to say that he's going to do the same thing Saddam did. But what I mean is that when Saddam Hussein built up a massive military to take on his historical rival, the Iranians, once he had taken them on and fought the battle as far as he could fight it, there was nowhere else to go on that front. But he still had a million-man army under arms, and they're going to start getting bored and agitated pretty quickly, so you have to do something with them. And I think Aliyev is running into the same problem right now. They pushed the Armenians out of most of Karabakh in 2020. They accomplished what they wanted there, and now the army is agitating. The people are saying, I thought the whole of Karabakh was ours. Do you mean it or not? He's kind of forced himself into a corner here. 
Um, so with that being said, as the comparison to Saddam, um, I think that the potential for uh, the war to, to, to include Armenia directly is definitely there. I think Armenia is trying to avoid being pulled in directly because their their military was eviscerated in the 2020 war. I mean, they had on paper they had according to the IISS's military balance in 2020 they had about 190 tanks. Uh we now know that was incorrect. They had probably about 400 main battle tanks in service, but about 200 of them or 250 of them were destroyed by Azerbaijan. So half of their tank force um these are not modern tanks. These are you know mostly older T72s and things of that nature. Um and that's just kind of par for the course. Armenia was operating on a defense budget of about $500 million a year in the lead up to the war versus Azerbaijan's several billion dollars a year. And so there was just no comparison between the two militarily. And there's not really a comparison economically either, right? I mean, uh, Azerbaijan has actually gotten relatively wealthy because of uh, fossil fuels. Am I right? Yeah, they've got a lot of natural gas and oil in, in, uh, Azerbaijan, particularly in the Baku region. Um, so that's part of it. The other part of it is Azerbaijan has access to the international market that Armenia does not because Armenia's border with Turkey is closed. Their border with Azerbaijan is closed. Their only, the only real way in and out of Armenia for trade is the Leshin corridor, which runs to the south, which we'll probably get into here in a little bit. Hey there, eagle eared listeners. This is Matthew. Arum reached out uh, after we'd recorded this, and uh, he just wanted me to say that he'd misspoke, and what he meant was... Sunik province, or the Sunik corridor. And back to the show. That connects to Iran, to what's known as Iranian Azerbaijan. And so that is a vital strategic corridor for the Armenians. It's their, their lifeline to the world. Without getting super into the weeds, why is the border with Turkey closed? That's a legacy of the 1915 uh, Armenian genocide. Um, things were nearly normalized in the late 2000s between Armenia and Turkey. Uh, basically, an agreement that Turkey would acknowledge that there had been a genocide. Armenia would acknowledge that we're not going to pursue legal claims. And the border reopens. And that's the divide between Armenians there. If you live in the diaspora community, so Glendale... If you live in Glendale, California, and you're Armenian, uh, you probably see the genocide and the legacy of the genocide as the most important geopolitical issue that Armenia can take on and that Turkey needs to have some kind of uh, apology for what they have done. Uh, if you're an Armenian who lives in Armenia, you'll say Karabakh is the most important issue and that Turkey is kind of backseat because Turkey is not the direct threat right now. Azerbaijan is. Um, and yeah, go ahead. Well, I, I wanted to zero in on why... What is it about this territory and this, I guess, this region that uh, has made it so fought over? So the region itself, um, this is going to earn me some scorn from my uh, fellow Armenians. And so I apologize, folks, but this is the reality. Uh, going back, Karabakh was populated by both Armenians and what are known today as Azerbaijanis or Aziris. Uh, they weren't known as Aziris necessarily prior to the uh, Soviet Soviet Union creating the Republic of Azerbaijan, but they were there. And to say that they weren't there is historical revisionism. They were our neighbors. They were they lived among us. We just called them Muslims or Turks. They didn't have a national identity because we really didn't either until. I mean, we had a national identity. Armenians had a national identity, but it wasn't a modern nation state until really 1991. It was a part of the Soviet Union. We should do, like, as a tangent, we should do an episode some point at, on, uh, like, how the conception of a national identity is way more recent than I think people, like, really understand. Right. And that's kind of what I'm getting at. Is like yeah, there yeah. were Armenians and there were people in the Azerbaijan region who identified as Muslims from Azerbaijan or the Azerbaijan region, but the idea of a nation state being cohesive within a border is relatively new. And, and this is historical revisionism that you see with the Israel-Palestine issue too, right? Where Israelis will say there was no such thing as Palestine and Palestinians will say Israel's a new state. Okay, well, most states are pretty new as of like 1945. So let's stop that argument. Um, and so there were always, there were, there was always mixture in, in Karabakh, but it was predominantly Armenian and the Armenians were, were the majority in Karabakh. Now, both Azerbaijan and Armenia were part of the Soviet Union, and so when the border was redrawn under the Soviet Union to make Nagorno-Karabakh part of Armenia, it didn't really matter as much because they were all within the same country. It would be kind of like dividing the border between two U.S. states. There'd be some legal issues between it, but it wouldn't necessarily cause a war between countries like it would now. 
like um, giving Crimea to Ukraine. Right. And luckily that hasn't <laughs> proved that to be like, fine. Right. Right. That hasn't been an issue historically. Um, I mean, we, we got close, but we headed that one off at the pass. Um, but so there, there were Armenians and Azeris living together in Karbakh. Uh, it was really in the late eighties that things started to change. Um, as it became clearer and clearer that the Soviet Union was going to change up and, and maybe not break up, but wouldn't stay the same as it was. Uh, Armenians started to coalesce around the Russian nationalists within the Soviet Union, within the late Soviet Union. So the Boris Yeltsin clan, whereas the Azeris coalesced around Mikhail Gorbachev and the Communist Party. Uh, this is because Armenians are not seen as, uh, air quotes here, as good as white Russians within the Soviet Union. But Armenians were a close second, right? Like an Armenian could make an officer within the Red Army pretty easily, whereas an Azeri as a Muslim probably could not as easily have made officer within the Red Army. That is to say, there were a lot of Azeri soldiers and conscripts and a lot of Armenian officers. Um, so the Armenians had more of an elite seat at the table than the Azeris. When the Soviet Union broke up, of course, the Armenians benefited from that. Yeltsin had won that fight and Armenia won, won as a proxy. So there was not only the large Armenian officer contingent that served in the first Karabakh war that broke out in the nineties. There was also a lot of sympathy among Russian Soviet officers for the Armenians. So they donated a bunch of tanks. They just handed over a bunch of tanks to Armenia in this first war. And so. This is where we get into more historical revisionism, and this is where I also catch flack from from Armenians at times, is that Armenia won the first Karabakh war not because we're, we're elite warriors, not because we're better men, not because we're better at fighting, but because we had tanks, we had officers, we had training, and we had an army that was pretty much easy to create on day one. Azerbaijan, on the other hand, had a lot of conscripts, they had police forces, they had some light militia, but they didn't have an army, and that's what really mattered in the 90s. What needed to happen after the war in the 90s was some kind of a ceasefire peace treaty negotiation between two groups that had been neighbors before. That is to say, the Armenians should never have compelled the Azeris to leave Karabakh and should never have essentially forced them out of their lands. Uh, there are cities in Karabakh that were Azeri, Azeri-dominated, that were ghost towns until 2020. They were completely abandoned and shuttered, and they were looted for everything they had. And as much as the Armenian genocide played a role in why Armenians felt justified in doing that, it was a fundamentally unjustified act. Um, and that's where I draw the line, at 2020. Because after 2020, things shifted. Armenians were no longer the oppressor or the stronger party that was holding Karabakh. Armenians were now on the back foot. And the Azeris were continuing to push into ethnically Armenian lands and Armenian-dominated cities. And the war crimes that were committed, there were war crimes on both sides, but the Azeris committed far more war crimes than the Armenians because of – not because of any nationalistic reasons, like in terms of Azeris being bad people. Again, it's the rhetoric within the country. It's the rhetoric within the media in Azerbaijan, and it's the fact that they were – the upper dog in the up dog, if you will, uh, in this situation, we've talked about the up dog before. So he comes up again. What's up dog. He's, he's terrible. He's a terrible, uh, Did I really say that. I'm, I'm yeah. So we've, the worst thing is we've done this joke before. We've done this and, joke. Uh, yeah. 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 We were, and it's never ourselves. funny. We do it every no, time. No. So yeah. Um, how did Azerbaijan get to a place where they became top dog? It was mostly their, uh, their natural gas and oil money. Uh, they, they were making a ton of money in the nineties and two thousands. Uh, starting around 2008, their trade with the U.S. skyrocketed. Um, I'm not sure exactly why I was looking at statistics and they skyrocketed after 2008. So either something changed or they started keeping better track in 2008. Um, but that is to say that Armenia wasn't necessarily always going to be on the back foot in the international political realm. Armenians thought we had a good thing. We thought we had won. We thought we had Russia on our side. We had our protector. We didn't need to go to the West. Azerbaijan didn't have Russia on their side, so they had to stick with Turkey and stick with the West. The answer has been that long-term, Azerbaijan made a better bet, um, which is unfortunate because the result is ethnic cleansing. Um, and I think that the solution from here on out is that Armenia needs to get realistic 
and understand that they have two very bad choices to make here. Choice A is to stand by and watch Azerbaijan push Armenians out of Karabakh and retake the whole region and hope beyond hope that someday, somehow, we can come to some amicable amicable agreement with the Azeris and the Turks over Armenians returning to Karabakh. The other option is to throw the Armenian army at Azerbaijan, lose thousands of conscripts, and have our Azerbaijan push as far as they want into the Republic of Armenia without anybody in the international community doing more than being strongly concerned. Um, and that's really the situation we have here. Um, if Armenia wants to see lasting peace, they need to play on the fact that uh, Recep Tayyip Erdogan in Turkey does not want a regional strongman in Aliyev who can dominate and push things around. They want peace in the region to the advantage of the Azerbaijanis, but not with an Azer- Azeri strongman with a massive military at his, at his uh, hands. You mentioned the UN, um, and I think this is a good tease because uh, tomorrow morning we're going to be talking, uh, doing recording another episode that is all about uh, how the UN has kind of become ineffectual. Is that the right way to put it, Jason? Would you yeah, say I mean, the- just, you know, basically with the UN General Assembly going on this week, half of the world's leaders of import basically couldn't be asked to show up to the general assembly. Uh, so, I mean, it's just, it's, yeah. I mean, this guy's just been talking about how the UN just doesn't have its mojo anymore. Yeah. Does this, does this institution still matter at all? Right. Right. Uh, and I, I think it does in, in certain ways, but then you have these big issues like this where what is the UN doing? And like, I, I think the, what the the kind of the beginning of this this part of the conflict started the same day as the UN General Assembly, right? It was like the first day of the UN General Assembly. It was, yeah. So, uh, does this? What do you think? Like, what do you think institutional bodies should be doing? What should their response be here? Uh, what aren't they doing? They aren't doing anything, um, which is unfortunate. I think that. There are a number of international bodies that could be doing something here. Um, unfortunately, the most we've gotten, we didn't get peacefire, a ceasefire uh, guarantors in Karbak in 2020. There were no peacekeepers deployed other than the Russian peacekeepers, which um, have not been very helpful. Um, but there were ceasefire like observers from the EU and the OSCE that were sent in. And in recent weeks, Azerbaijan shot at them. They shot at the observers' cars. Now, in my mind, in a perfect world on planet Aram, if you shoot at peacekeeping observers or observers for a ceasefire, uh, the next step up would be armed peacekeepers deployed to the region to make sure you don't shoot at them. Unfortunately, the answer was just, okay, don't observe the ceasefire anymore, which is not really the solution here. Um, international bodies, I mean, this is an example where the United Nations could and should deploy a peacekeeping force to Karbakh. I mean, the only real factor here that would play would be if Turkey didn't want it to happen and ask the U.S. to veto, which the U.S. probably wouldn't listen to necessarily, um, or if Russia thought it would be convenient to veto it, which is entirely likely because they are playing the role of a global spoiler at this point. Um, so beyond the U.N., if the U.N. were incapable of acting, I think that uh, it would behoove Western powers to stop this fighting, uh, the U.S. and France alone could do it. The the Azerbaijan is not going to shoot at American soldiers or French soldiers. Uh, they're not EU observers. They're fully armed combat troops. And if France and, our, and, and the U.S. wanted to make good on their uh, rhetorical promises to guarantee the Republic of Armenia's territory, that's a good way to do it. The reason they haven't previously deployed peacekeepers is because Karabakh is not internationally recognized as Armenian territory. Despite the fact that a lot of Armenians live there, it's not legally Armenia. So it would be against the law to defend it for other countries. Now, if Azerbaijan attacks into the Republic of Armenia, that's completely a different story. But as it stands, that's the reason there hasn't been a lot of action is because the UN already decided who's in the right on on Karabakh. And they said it was Azerbaijan. Um yeah, I think so, the, the rhetoric here is pretty important, right? Uh, Azerbaijan is essentially saying that it's de- deploying. Like this is a mil- this is a police operation where they are suppressing terrorists. Is their version of events right? Yeah, I mean, they even said that it was PKK working with Armenia, which is 
Um, I think they forgot the, the, that there were also Gulenists in there too, and uh, and Greeks. So um, let's throw them all in. You're listening to Angry Planet. We'll be right back. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Angry Planet says hi. Welcome back. There's more than just like that story. There's also from what I've been reading, and I've been getting op-eds uh, into me at Newsweek about Armenia, Azerbaijan for weeks now. It's like a, a, almost like snow. Um, but there's been a lot of rhetoric on the Azeri part, right? I mean, talking about Armenians as being subhuman and, you know, all uh, and just sort of crazy genocidal uh, type language. And, um, and does that play into things on the ground? Um, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And again, I'm going to caveat here that it's not because Azeris are, are worse people than the rest of us. If you look at the war on terror, you look at the Iraq war, the rhetoric coming out of Dick Cheney's office and George Bush's office, the we're going to take the gloves off and do things behind the scenes that are unsavory and unseemly, translated to American soldiers as torture people at Abu Ghraib. And so those are Americans. Those are our fellow Americans who also committed atrocities because they got the understanding in the rhetoric from their leaders that it was okay to commit those atrocities, that this was an okay unleashing of that inner beast that they thought they had. And, uh, and so, yeah, I mean, it's not surprising that when the rhetoric is, is inherently genocidal coming from on high, that soldiers will behave in a genocidal way. Um, and, I think this is partially because Azerbaijan is not a democracy. It's an authoritarian dictatorship. Aliyev has been president since 2003. And, they don't have fundamental freedoms of speech and freedoms of expression that are common in the rest of the world and a lot of the developed world. Uh, Armenia is not exactly a bastion of freedom and democracy either, but it is a functional democracy, not always perfectly functional, but a functional democracy that does have more freedom of speech. You'll see the media in Armenia condemning the president regularly or the leadership regularly. You don't really see that in Azerbaijan. And so I think that that has played a role in why there were not as many atrocities perpetrated by the Armenian side, because it wasn't as uniform of rhetoric coming out. It was more of defend our people and defend our historical homeland than avenge our homeland. I don't know if that will remain true in the next flare up in 20 to 40 years. Something else that you'd said, uh, as I was going through your Twitter feed is I want to do before we jump on. And it's just an entertaining follow. You should jump on there uh, while Twitter lasts. Um, this buildup to war was patently obvious to anybody who wasn't willfully deluding themselves. Uh, what were you seeing? Uh, I mean, not just in the media, but also with your magnificent OSINT skills. What did you observe? Like I said, there were a lot of buildups of like drone deployments to runways, uh, like tactical, more tactical deployments, right? Like you can have drones at the airport in Baku. That's one thing. But when you start deploying them near the front line, that's entirely different and means something entirely different. There were also a large number of cargo flights between Israel and, and 
uh, Azerbaijan and then uh, some even from the U.S. to Azerbaijan. And these were uh, 747s and Antonov uh, or IL-76s, these very large jet transport planes carrying lots of likely weapons, um, which is something that we saw again in the lead up to the 2020 war was Azerbaijan suddenly buying a whole bunch of Iranian or Israeli uh, suicide drones, uh, loitering munitions and uh, deploying those to the battlefield. Um, unfortunately for us, uh, Matthew and Jason, uh, they did not preface this war with a music video like they did last time. So we can't go over that. Um, I did check. I did check and I checked uh, too, actually. I checked. No, I legit checked I because every too. time there's been a flare up, they've released the music video. So I was kind of surprised. Um, but yeah. Yeah, we can, all we can do is go back and look at the old music videos from 20, from 2020. What's the woman's name? She's incredible, uh, in a grim way. Uh, I can't remember, but yeah, I, I'd have uh, to pull it up. She's like the Azerbaijani answer to share, but like nationalistic <laughs> but, and genocidal. Yeah, it, it's share if Cher's career was just her on the, the aircraft carrier forever. Right, right, right. Exactly. Uh, can I ask the question that we always have to ask in a situation like this? Um, why do we care? I mean, we've got so many bigger fish to fry. Um, I mean, you know, Taiwan, China, you might have heard of this little war going on in Europe called Ukraine. Um, well, Russia, Ukraine. Seriously, the small countries, small populations, not really near anything that we give a shit about. Why do I care? There's two reasons, really. I mean, there's there's the direct reason, which is that Legally, we have all pledged to uphold international law, and there's also the direct reason in terms of if this war spirals, if Azerbaijan gets everything they want in Karabakh and they invade the Lashin Corridor in southern Armenia, Iran has spoken to the effect of they will get involved. Now, whether or not they actually will is an entirely different topic, but they wouldn't be happy because there's an Azerbaijan region in in Iran uh, that... Aliyev has made comments about wanting to make part of a greater Azerbaijan, which is not something Iran wants. Now, on the other side, if Iran were to get involved in the fight, Turkey, a NATO ally, would also get involved in the fight because they have a defense treaty with Azerbaijan. Ostensibly so, a NATO ally. Ostensibly a NATO ally, right. Uh, a NATO frenemy. Um, now, there's also the more macro reason, which is a lot of people ask themselves, why do we care about the genocide in Rwanda? But what we've seen from history is that the genocide in Rwanda didn't stop in Rwanda. It spiraled into the Congo. It collapsed the Democratic Republic of the Congo and kicked off a 20-year refugee flow. Now, in 2016, there were more refugees coming from the Congo than there were from Syria, Afghanistan, and Iraq combined. Those were the refugees that were showing up in Europe. Those were the refugees that were showing up in the U.S. that kicked off this nationalistic fervor across Europe and across the U.S. that resulted in the election of Donald Trump, that resulted in Brexit, that resulted in all these other terrible things that have happened to us. So the effects are there. They're just not always one, one, two, three. You know, you can't really always follow it directly, but they definitely have an impact on us all. Uh no one ethnicity or na- nation on this planet lives alone or lives within a, a vacuum, and it all it impacts all of us. Um, going back to even Israel-Palestine again, Henry Kissinger thought the Palestinians were irrelevant to the greater peace treaties in the Middle East. Henry Kissinger thought it was more important to secure peace between the Arab states and Israel than it was between all Arabs and Israel. And look how that's done for us. Okay, that was really well said. Thank you. <laughs> Just take a second to say that, I mean, you really put connected the dots brilliantly. So I appreciate that. Do I mean, you- it's it's an issue I've struggled with my whole life, you know, because I, 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 I got that question a lot growing up about, about not about, I understand where you're coming from with Armenia, Azerbaijan. I would get that question, about, like, why do we care about Iraq? And it's like, well, we have like 80,000 soldiers there. So that's why we should <laughs> care. But I'm just saying, like, uh, can you tell me a little bit more about as as a segue perhaps between uh, leaders? Can you tell me a little bit more about uh, the president of Azerbaijan, who he is, what he wants, how long has he been there? Is he going to be there forever? So, I mean, forever is a long time. Um, but so he's been president with air quotes since two thousand and three. Um, the previous president was his daddy. 
um, who was a Communist Party official in the Soviet Union and Soviet Azerbaijan. So there's a continuity there, right? And, and this is something I was talking about with another friend last night, that if you look at the 15 constituent republics, republics within the Soviet Union, the three that have done the best are the Baltic states, which completely threw off their Communist Party leadership after 1991. All the other Soviet states in some way had former Communist Party bosses and Soviet Party bosses stay in power. That is to say, there wasn't a true revolution in the former Soviet Union in the sense that the old bosses were gone. They just put on new hats. I'm not a communist anymore. Now I'm just a Aziri nationalist who still believes in a very strong central state and blah, 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 right? Um, and so that's that's part of the issue. Um, Armenia, of course, developed a democracy, which has helped and hurt it. Um, the problem we're seeing right now is that Nikol Pashinyan, the current uh, leader of Armenia, he is taking a more realistic stance in that he doesn't want to directly fight Azerbaijan right now because he knows he can't. This has led to a lot of people calling for his resignation, um, which just kind of shows that um, the street is not always the most intelligent place to develop your political opinions. And this is why uh, populism is bad, um, I guess, is my tea, my, 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 my end of the sentence here. Can you elaborate on that? I've been think I, I didn't mean to go there to go here, but I've been thinking about populism a lot um, as a like constant recurrent force, especially in like American democracy. Um, so I'm reading uh, I'm reading the Colin Dickey book about conspiracy theories under the eye of power. Have you heard of this? Uh, it's really yeah. great. He does a really great job. He kind of his central argument is that, um, and I agree with him. That we look at things like QAnon um, and these other kind of like paranoid populist movements in the United States specifically and believe that they are an aberration when in fact like it's just – it's part of who we are. Um, so I've been thinking about like populism uh, in that kind of context. Can you kind of put that – can you kind of elaborate on why populism is bad um, and – how you deal with it. Cause it does seem like it's a constant recurrent historical force. Right. Yeah. And I think, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll tamp this down to the, to the Karbach issue too, within the, the populism topic. I think that if you look at the last 30 years of development, since Azerbaijan and Armenia became independent, both States have focused on one key issue. And that issue is Karbach. Now, Azerbaijan focused on it a lot more heavily because they were on the back foot. That is to say, though, a large part of their national development has been this rah, rah, rally around the flag, someday we'll stick it to our enemies kind of kind of stuff. So when that's what the street knows and that's what the people know, you have to sometimes not give them what they want. It's like raising a child. Of course, your child wants ice cream and, and candy every day. Sometimes for their best, you need to tell them to eat their vegetables, right? And so sometimes... When a political leader can do something that's very popular among their people, uh, take Crimea from Ukraine or retake more of Karabakh, they shouldn't necessarily do it. Because, of course, the loudest voices in the room are always going to cheer for something like that. Uh, and then there's the rally around the flag effect, right, where you see – and this is not unique to, to any national group – that – in times of national crisis or national emergency, we all tend to put aside our differences for a little bit. The opposition parties silence for a bit, rally around the flag, and then we see our differences again. The, the problem is when we're rallying around the flag, that's when it's the responsibility of decent leaders to channel that in a proper place, right? That's when it's the responsibility of good leadership to not, not listen to the seediest elements of that nationalistic voice that's cheering for whatever has happened. And so uh, that is to say, if Donald Trump had gotten elected on the platform that he got elected on and then turned around and told his constituents, hey, we're going to restructure the immigration system, not completely shut down immigration. Sure, some of his supporters would have been pissed, but most of them would have said, yeah, that's what our man said. Hell yeah. And so, I mean, you don't always listen to the loudest voices in the room. You don't always listen to the, to the most extreme voices in the room, because the, if you keep doing that, you're going to keep edging further and further into the extremities. And that's not helpful for anybody. Speaking of edging further into the extremities, uh, the nice, nice segue. Thank, thank you. you. Well done. Well done. Thank you very much. I was quite proud of myself. I'm proud of you. Let's look at the other strong man in the caucuses. Um, 
I'm going to screw up his name because I can't. This is one I definitely can't pronounce. Uh, rump, here, let me, I've got it written down here. Don't cut this out. Don't cut out my flailing. Uh, Ramzan Kedroff. Yes, kind of. Never heard of him. I Never heard of him. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Chechen leader Ramzan Kedrov. Uh, it, why did I decide to do a, like a show that focuses on so much foreign policy and so much of the rest of the world, and I can't pronounce anything? Uh, just speaking to the other half of the audience uh, who <laughs> may need a translation, it's Ramzan Kedirov. Thank you. But it you sure were close. No, I wasn't. But I appreciate. <laughs> But I appreciate you lying to me. It's very polite of you. <laughs> Absolutely. We're all friends here. So um, I, I was struck this week. It's one of these things. It's like, uh, sorry, I, I've been thinking about this a lot for some reason. Uh, you read a lot of like science fiction and fantasy books too growing up. And there's all these nonsense proper nouns. Uh, and I don't know, like, then they start making TV shows out of all of them. And you learn like, oh, I've been saying the wrong thing in my head. For 20 years. Anyway. <laughs> anyway. So I was struck this week also by news that uh, the leader of Chechnya is sick. He's, of course, denying this. Um, and I, it occurred to me that we have never done like a big deep dive on this on this gentleman. And I think we still might. It's not exactly why we're here today. Uh, I, I, I kind of wanted to focus on his shitposting legacy uh, and his legacy as like kind of a cult political figure in the West and like why, like this is a guy that uh, has committed horrifying crimes against his own population and people um, yet is big in the MMA world uh, is a meme online. I would say is a based world leader to use the extremely online terminology Um and as he, you know, perhaps fades into the extremities, depending on what, which news reports you believe, um, what do we make of this now in 2023? Uh, I will open the floor. Well, I think it's, um, I think it's indicative of a couple things at play. I mean, one, let's talk realistically. He's a strong man and strong man has a hyphen after it that continues child. He's a strong man child um, in the sense that he's, he's tough. He's ruthless. He can have people killed, but he also indulges in some really stupid things. Uh, and by stupid, I, I mean, fast cars are fun, but if you're a, a leader, you probably shouldn't be tooling around in fast cars. Like he shouldn't be doing a lot of the things that he does. What I'm trying to say is I think he does a lot of drugs too. I think he does a lot of drugs. Um, and I think that's taking an impact on his health. Um, he has a he has a definite cocaine energy about him. He has like sure. big cocaine energy, like big big co- yeah big cocaine yeah. energy um, in everything that he does, really. And um, and and so I think that's that's probably playing a role on it in it. But I also think that he's probably similar um, mentally right now to uh, Dmitry Medvedev, the uh, chair of the Russian Security Council, former Russian president and prime minister who is, I mean, very clearly on Twitter drinking himself to death. Like, the guy is, like, putting, giving Yeltsin a run for his money. Like, Did he in terms pick a of, fight? He picked a fight with Jeffrey Lewis the other week, didn't he? Oh, he didn't picks fights with it? everybody. But yeah, he picked a fight with Jeffrey Lewis, and it was like, dude, you're you're not slinging mud with the right person. This guy is going to put you in your place. Like Jeffrey Lewis is a, is a blue ribbon champion shit talker, and like, I would not take him on any day. Um... <laughs> But Dmitry Medvedev did, and he and he lost quite plainly in the uh, in the online debate there. But he's regularly, I mean, Medvedev is is a little more um, clear and blatant to the English speaking world because he posts in English more than Kadyrov does. Um, but he, you know, is just blatantly calling for genocide and saying pretty unhinged stuff on Twitter um, at odd hours of the night, which is not unlike our. Uh, Chechen warlord friend here uh, who will post random videos at what are very odd hours of the night in Chechnya of him running on a treadmill to prove that he's not dead or taking uh, a walk in a lovely forest taking a walk in a lovely forest or always like trying to prove that he's healthy but like 
in the same way that Trump tried to prove to us that he was a picture of health, where it's like, yeah, I see you, though. Like, I, I'm looking at you very clearly out of breath and sweaty on that treadmill, and I don't think you've been running for that long. So you're not convincing me. But I think that's part of what makes him a meme, right? I mean, he's like a lot of these strong men who became memes online just because the stuff they say is so ridiculous that it's funny. It's funny to us outside Chechnya. In Chechnya, it's it's terrible. But it's similar to like my my friend in Turkey asked me to send him a, a Trump hat several years ago because to him, Trump is hilarious. He understands that he's a, a not a good thing, but he's funnier because he's distant, right? He's a meme because he's distant. Um, and so I think that's that's part of the the role that Kadyrov has played. Um, and then of course there's just the the whole the fact that he's like a figurehead for Chechen men. Militant Chechen men. I mean, they they cut their hair and shave their beards to look like him. They, you know, they 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 emulate him. They 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 hang on his every word, and it's it's weird. He's created this cult of personality around him, but it's not just him. It's the Russian state that helped create this cult of personality in order to install him as the leader of Chechnya, uh, in order to stabilize Chechnya, much in the same way that the Russians had a plan to stabilize, in air quotes, Ukraine by bringing in Viktor Yanukovych, had they taken over in 2022. What happens if he dies? You mean like internationally or what am I going to do? <laughs> I mean, I would love to get a preview of whatever memes you've got cooked for I, I what happens if he dies. But I was going to say internationally. That was my question. Okay. Well, I mean, I don't really have a lot of memes pre-cooked. I normally just let it ha- let it flow through me. So I have to, you know, in the, in the moment. Um, internationally, it depends on how he dies, right? And it depends on when he dies. Like if he died tomorrow... Uh, there might be some instability in the Caucasus, but I have a feeling that Putin would be able to suppress temporarily any stirrings there. If, however, the Russians are dealt a tremendous defeat in Ukraine and then Kadyrov dies, that could be different. That could see Chechnya exploding into, uh, conflict once more and it's important to remember that islamic state does have a presence in chechnya and they have conducted a large number of attacks within russia not major attacks i mean there have been some major bombings and and things of that nature but uh little attacks a policeman being gunned down in his car or a police station being blown up or something like that those have happened um and so it's important to remember that there's also the potential for islamic state to benefit from uh any instability in in the caucasus uh especially in chechnya have you seen the uh, the video where he pretends to arrest Zelensky for cocaine possession? Yeah, and yeah, incredible projection. I think is is the sense I got from that video. That's kind of what I saw with it too. Um, and yeah, he's posted. I think it was either him or Medvedev that posted about how Zelensky is going to legalize weed and throw cocaine parties in Ukraine or something. And like, I mean. As long as he's not bogarting, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's a that's a populist move. Kadyrov should understand it, right? So, um, I think that's a nice place to end. It's maybe one of the most upbeat endings we've had for an Angry Planet episode. Unless I'm Jason, you've got, a, you've got no. Let's let's go with question. it. Let's go yeah. with it. Don't absolutely don't bogart the coke at the coke party. Is <laughs> is how we're going out. <laughs> I've learned so much this episode. Um, Aram, where can people find your work? I also know we didn't flag your institution at the beginning, did we? No, and that's that's probably uh, <laughs> for the best. <laughs> our last interview, um, they weren't thrilled with my wording. Uh, our our text interview about uh, uh, Musk. That's the guy I was thinking of. Um, they didn't like my quote. Um, so I will say that if you'd like to know who I work for, you can follow me on Twitter. Uh, I'm not going to call it by its new name. It's Twitter. Uh, my handle is at Aram, at Shabanian Aram, at S-H-A-B-A-N-I-A-N-A-R-A-M. Uh, my old handle at Aram Shabanian has been deleted because I kept posting uh, Saddam dancing to Hey Ya. And I guess that's against the rules on Twitter. Well, that's not quite, genocide, okay. But. Okay. That's not quite the video that you were posting. That was, that's the one I got banned for. I thought it was the, the one where it's like the POV you're stuck in a, it's 
you know, whatever date in the mid nineties and you're stuck in the, uh, and you're stuck in the well, like you're stuck in a, a, um, fuck, uh, a stairwell and it's, Hey, y'all, but played in the stairwell. No, over that footage one. of C over like nineties footage from CNN. That one actually didn't get me uh, in as much trouble. It was definitely, hey, yeah, they, uh, I posted it like eight times. And so <laughs> I got knocked eight times. And they said that I was depriving the artists of their revenue because everybody watches a 30 second video of Saddam dancing to Hey Ya and goes, I never need to hear that song now. So <laughs> thank you so much for coming on to Angry Planet and talking to us and doing uh, the caucus episode with us. I appreciate yeah, it. Glad to be here, man. Caucusing about the raucous caucuses. God damn it, Jason. Thanks for listening to another episode of Angry the show is produced with love by Matthew Galt and Jason Fields, with the assistance of Kevin Nadal. This is the place where we ask you for money. If you subscribe to us on substack.angryplanet.com, it means the world to us. The show, which we've been doing for more than seven years now, means the world to us, and we hope it means a lot to you. We're incredibly grateful to our subscribers. Please feel free to ask us questions, suggest show ideas, or just say hi. $9 a month may sound like a big ask, but it helps us to do the show on top of everything else that we do. We'd love to make Angry Planet a full-time gig and bring you a lot more content. If we get enough subscriptions, that's exactly what we'll do. But even if you don't subscribe, we're grateful that you listen. Many of you have been listening since the beginning, and seriously, that makes it worth doing the show. Thank you for listening, and look for another episode next week. Stay safe. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.